You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 248, Jay Baker and Discovering Unbelievable Grace. It's a good story, friends. But first, a message from our sponsors. The event of the year for Christian business owners is just around the corner. Handprint Legacy Live 2021 is virtual this year, which makes it super easy to attend from anywhere in the world without makeup, long flights, or expensive hotel rooms. Thursday through Saturday, June 24 to 26, we'll spend three powerful days mapping out your first or next most important steps for your business. I'm Katie Horner. My husband and I have grown from full-time ministry in Mexico to full-time international business owners by understanding and solving the countless marketing challenges faced by Christian entrepreneurs. We created the Handprint Legacy Live event as a safe haven where small business owners, teachers, authors, and coaches strategize, implement, and grow their business. This event is highly interactive and tickets are limited. Grab yours today before we sell out because three days of Bible-based fun and marketing instruction is going to leave you with your next marketing funnel all mapped out. Register now for the 2021 event at handprintlegacylive.com. Friends, if you're interested in Katie's conference, Handprint Legacy Live 2021, use just go to ericnevins.com slash handprint uh, for your access to that event. That is a special affiliate link that I, that she gave me to use. If you do, then that she sends a little bit back toward in my direction. So again, ericnevins.com slash handprint, ericnevins.com slash handprint. Thanks a lot. Let's get this show started. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I'm your host, Eric Nevins. I'm so glad you're here. We have a really great conversation for you today. This is going to be certainly uh, an engaging story. I know you're going to enjoy it. Um, If you haven't had a chance, go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com. That's where you're going to find show notes. Show notes are important. I found out recently not everybody knows what I mean when I say that. I've only been podcasting five years. That's okay. Show notes are the webpage where this episode lives. If you want to find links to anything we talk about, you can't remember because you're driving. That's okay. Just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. You'll find everything that we talk about, links to, and books and all the stuff you can find it there, including that little Patreon button. If you want to support us, that means the world to me. Okay. So I'm excited to introduce our guest today. He is uh, an author and a speaker at Revolution Church, Jay Baker. Jay, welcome to Halfway There. Hey, thank you. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, Yeah, it's good to make the connection. I'm really interested in hearing your story. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about kind of some of your, the ways theology grows and changes. I'm sure we'll get into that. As we go, tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of where God has you right now. Oh, um, well, I pastor, I actually haven't been really using that word. I, I, I lead a community called revolution and, um, we've been revolution church for a long time, but we've kind of been moving away from that okay. word. Uh, it might be interesting to talk about as well, I guess, because <laughs> I really haven't talked about it yet. We just kind of did it and didn't say anything about it. 
Um, but we're called a gathering because of the idea of where two or more gathered together. And, um, you know, I've been doing revolution in one form or the other for over 25 years, I guess. Um, I started when I was 18. I'm 45 now. Um, so I guess even a little longer than that. I just am in denial um, <laughs> that I've been doing it that long. Um, I, I uh, am currently in uh, Seattle, Washington. I, I, we've done revolution in, in uh, church in Brooklyn, New York. We've done it in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, did it in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And what brings me to Seattle, Washington is that my ex-wife and I have two amazing children and we wanted to keep the kids together and she has family in Seattle. So we agreed to move out to Seattle and I agreed to move out here so we could keep the kids yeah. and together. So we have our shared custody and 50, 50 and, and raise our children, uh, that way. So that's the, the main, my main focus in my life is those yeah. two babies. I love that. Uh, and, and just trying to help people think critically and think well. And the foundations that I use for that are the Bible and Christianity. And so that's, a, that's always been a big part of my life and the message of grace. Yeah, it's been kind of interesting, those two things together in the last, I don't know, let's say five or 10 years, Christianity and thinking well, right? Like it feels like, oh, maybe, maybe we've got a little bit of work to do in that regard. So I'm, I'm excited to hear more about revolution, but I want to hear about your story. So um, what we do is we go back and then we'll kind of lead up to to where we are today as we go. Um, so take me back now. Okay. So th- I'm just going to acknowledge this. So you're, um, I was going to usually ask, did you grow up in a Christian family? But I know you grew up in a Christian family, right? Yeah. So tell us, tell us kind of that story and what that was like for you. Um, well, I grew up um, with parents who were televangelists. Um, I mean, before that they were actually children's ministers who became televangelists. Oh, wow. And interesting enough, I mean, it was the kind of the same idea that all Christians have now with the internet, except a few were a little bit more savvy back in the day when TV really got started and thought, Hey, we should have Christianity on TV. And so my parents went into television, actually starting doing a children's show. Um, but as part of my dad's deal, he got a late night show to do, which eventually became, you know, Christian television. Yeah. And, and, um, and so my parents, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, um, became very huge televangelists in the eighties. Um, my dad is a bit of a, workaholic so he decided to also create a, originally a retreat center which then kind of had a water park and a hotels and um he also there you know ended up building his television network into a satellite television network so there's actually literally had a satellite in space became wow. the largest christian television network in the world um one of at the originally i think one of three uh satellite networks um you know, Disneyland, Disney World, and then it was Heritage USA as far as many people, how how many people came out and visited yearly. Um, So my parents were quite big. I mean, I had to have bodyguards. Um, You did as a kid? Wow, going to school and stuff? Well, they would drop me off at school and pick me up at school. 
because my parents took me to, I went to the Christian school that was at the church. Um, but yeah, because, uh, they, we had death threats and kidnapping wow. threats and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, and it was the eighties that everybody thought everybody was getting kidnapped in the eighties. Right. Yeah. Um, did you know, I'm, and- I'm from the town where, uh, kids on milk cartons started. Oh, like really? In Des Moines. Yeah. It was Des Moines, Iowa. And, uh, and a dairy called AE Dairy, which literally I live just miles down the down the street from that. My grandparents went to church with the people who owned that. Wow. Fascinating, but yeah, and interesting. Like, actually, if you think about it, yeah, and, it was a big uh, deal. Quite an amazing thing. That's great work. I mean, that's a great legacy. I can, I would die happy if that was my legacy. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, so growing up, uh, being on TV. I mean, my dad did five shows a week. Plus did a sermon on Sunday. Um, I mean, it was surreal. I mean, it was like he was a pastor, a preacher, a TV evangelist, an entertainer. My mom was a singer at near the last couple of years. My mom did two TV shows every day. So she did 10 shows a week. And then Sunday with my dad, um, they were very busy people. And my dad had to raise a million dollars every two days to keep the place open. Um, and I think that's where the prosperity gospel really became a big yeah. thing for him. That's kind of interesting, right? Like that's, cause it's a big operation. You can't possibly, he can't possibly do all that work. And so you've got to have a, a bunch of people. You've got to have thousands of staff members. I mean, there was places you could, I mean, you know, there was neighborhoods on the ground. So people like wow. people would retire in that heritage uh, USA and things like that. So it was, yeah, it was really, <sighs> I mean, nothing I've seen before or after, you know, um, it was really in a strange, interesting place. And it was just kind of like an American dream with Jesus, you know? Yeah. Okay. And, so uh, I'm really fascinated by that. What was it like as a kid? Cause you didn't probably know any different, right? Mm-hmm. But what did that, I don't know. how did you like, notice that and how did that affect your the biggest culture shock for me, I guess was after, but I mean, I did have like, I played at my friend's house, so I knew they lived differently. I know they didn't have bodyguards. I knew they were, you know, I knew what normal kids were. I knew I was different, you know. Um, I knew that my picture went out on in, out on thousands and thousands of Christmas cards and all sorts of things oh, like yeah. that. I mean, my parents would send out our freaking, uh, you know, our school photos. So it was like one of those things where I knew my life was different. You know, I knew that we were we were different. And that was in some ways interesting and in a lot of ways negative for me. Cause I grew up feeling I'm very introverted almost to, to an unhealthy degree. And so it's like, I think that might've been part of that of always feeling separated and always feeling like the other. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was tough. And I think when I really noticed the difference was after, you know, the scandal happened in the in 87, when my parents' ministry fell apart and they were like on every rag magazine, every newspaper, every news station, Saturday Night Live was doing skits, the late night talk shows were making fun of them. I mean, honestly, I'm grateful that there was no social media at the time because oh, that's right? the most brutal place. Um, but yeah, so that that was really tough, you know, and then I kind of went into living life normal, you know, I mean, my parents, you know, my dad went to prison for five years. My parents lost everything. So, you know, we lived in a neighborhood. I went to a normal high school, but at high school, you know, I would get in fistfights because people would talk about my parents and talk about stuff like that. So 
um, it was it was very surreal to go through. Um, life is very hard and very difficult and full of a lot of suffering. And um, no matter where you're at in life, to be honest with you, and you know, learning to kind of cope with that, and live life on life's terms. Um, unfortunately, as a teenager, I think I felt so much like Heritage USA and the PTL Club were something that if we never got back or we never got to that level again, then we weren't doing enough, you know, mm. for God, or we weren't successful. And it took me a long time to get out of that type of that thought process of living in the past. And it's really sad when you're 15, 16, 17 years old living. <laughs> yeah. In the past. It sounds like you had a lot to live up to. You felt like. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, and our, our name was a joke was the butt of a joke. I mean, yeah. I remember going to churches and hearing pastors using my parents as examples of what not to do, not realizing I was in the congregation. I remember going to a youth group and a wow. youth pastor up and making a joke about my parents, you know, and so never feeling like you fit in, always feeling kind of completely scapegoated by everyone. Yeah. You know, the church, the secular world, everybody was just kind of like, you know, so that that was, I have a definitely have a unique perspective. Right. And I definitely, definitely have grace and mercy and compassion for a lot of people that people don't because I've been in those shoes. I know what it's like. And, um, so I still wince when I see everybody celebrating over the, the, the last fallen minister or the last scandal mm. or things like that, you know, cause I bet I threw it and I know what it's like on the other side as well. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, I've, I've always said, you know, whatever the scandal is, there's so much more to the story, right? Like there's, that you have no idea about and you know because they're people too and so there's whether whether it's you know something that you're there's always there's always these desires that we're we're driving to to try to you know take care of so here's my question for you what was your faith like like as a kid versus kind of before that before the scandal and then kind of did the scandal change it at all yeah definitely um I mean, as a kid, I was raised Assemblies of God, so very Armenian. Yeah, <laughs> you know, salvation you you know could slip through your fingers quite easily, and with the rapture and all that kind of stuff. And I got more of that from the the pastor, the youth pastors and stuff at their church than my parents. You know, my parents didn't do a lot of like Bible studies or things like that at home. Um, they let me play with He Man. And- oh, really? That. But then I'd go to youth group and tell they would tell me that he man was satanic. I'm like, why do my parents let me have satanic toys? I know, right? It's, <laughs> it is really crazy. I, so I grew up. You, I'm just like maybe not even a year younger than you. Okay. And I remember the '80s, and it was so like there was just so much of you know all these things that were just bad. Like we couldn't watch the Smurfs. I'm like, have you I seen the Smurfs? the Smurfs? Like, come on. I mean, my sister one night came home from a youth meeting and threw all of the Smurfs of all her Smurfs into my room. And I was like, why did you throw all her Smurfs into my room? And, you know, and I was like, great. Then find out later. She thought they were all little demons. I'm like, what? You threw your demons in my room. <laughs> like what's up with that? Thanks a lot, sis. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So, so that's interesting. Uh, and, and I don't, I mean, I don't know enough uh, about, I don't, was there a discrepancy from what your parents were teaching on, on TV versus what they were doing at home or was that? No, no. Okay. 
No, because I, mean, I, I never saw. I mean, I remember seeing them, but no. I mean, I was actually telling someone a story today. Like when we lost everything that first year, it was really kind of a dark year for us. We couldn't go anywhere. I mean, people would literally say horrific things to us on the streets, you know. Yeah. And I'm a little kid, and you know, hearing people be like, you know, you people are horrible or whatever, you know, and um. And one of the things I remember is my parents, you know, went to the local church and said, hey, listen, you know, do you guys have a family that can't afford to do Christmas? You know, really anybody who's just really struggling. And, and they said, yeah. And so I remember my dad taking me to the toy store and saying, like, we're going to buy a bunch of toys, but none of them are for you. And I was like, what? <laughs> mm. And, you know, we bought all these toys and all these groceries and all these things. And we went to this house and it was one of the poorest people's homes I've ever been in my life, to be honest with you. Um, and we went and celebrated Christmas and brought Christmas gifts and all these things. And when I looked around and I noticed there were no cameras, there was no newsletter going out. There was no, nothing like this. My parents had lost most of what they had so that when they were spending that money, I mean, it was money they, you know, didn't have a lot of to spend at the time. Yeah. And I think at that moment, I will like, it was one of those moments where you go like, wow, you know, they, they really believe what they've been doing this whole time. Yeah. And, um, and I remember feeling so amazingly touched by that moment as a kid, you know, and realizing the importance of, of giving and blessing others and caring for others. And, and, and just so proud of my parents for doing that when I knew they were both really struggling to stay alive, uh, much less take care of other people. Well, so, okay. So that obviously affected you. What did you ever have? So you kind of raised assemblies of God, you said, but like, did you ever have like a personal moments with God or like, what was your faith with God? I like that? I had moments where I would come home and not find my parents and think that the rapture happened. <laughs> right. You know I mean, so those, those kind of stories. I still wonder that every once in a while. I'm like, uh, <laughs> mixers on oh. why. <laughs> I just make sure the TV preachers are still on. Um, <laughs> no, um, so, you know, I mean, my parents were always about Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. But then there was that whole like thief of the night kind of very scary thing as well. Um, so, I mean, I knew about Jesus. I asked Jesus into my heart as a little boy, you know, and all that stuff. Um, what Assemblies of God kids do um, probably went to the altar a thousand times, you know. And mm -hmm. um, But yeah, so it wasn't, I mean, I was 11. You know, so it was like I wanted to play with my friends and stuff like that, but I knew that Jesus was important. You know, I mean, we prayed it before I went to bed. You know, my parents would say a prayer with me and things like that. So, um, but it's all I knew. And after the fall, when I became a teenager, it kind of became this type of thing of that I felt like I had to ignore God in order to just live because I thought yeah. God was like kind of a taskmaster, master of wanting me to be like, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to, and there's all this, cause I would go to these youth groups and go to these, I went to this Baptist church school for a little while and it seemed all about what you did, you know? And I was like, well, I can't keep up. So I'll just ignore it, you know? And so that's what I did for a long time. Um, but I had moments where I would come back to it for a little bit, or I would go to youth camp or something and have an experience, but yeah. Um, you know, it was, one of those things that I always kind of felt was pulling on me, 
but I didn't know how, but I knew how I was seeing everybody else do it. I didn't want, I didn't want to be a part of gossip. I didn't want to be judging other people. I, I didn't like how it was seemed very exclusive in some ways. So I just kind of avoided all that for a long time. And, um, it really took me diving into the Bible on my own and kind of reading books like Galatians mm. and Corinthians and Romans and even a little bit of Ephesians um, to really understand even what the Gospels were saying. I really had to like see what Paul had to say about it to understand the Gospels in a way because I'd heard the Gospels so much growing up. It was like right. any story you've heard, you know. Um, and so then I started to grasp this concept of grace. And when I saw the concept of grace, it was like alarms going off in my head, you know, and what happened was I was feeling really miserable. And I told a friend of mine who was becoming a youth pastor, I said, I feel like God hates me, Mm. you know, and, um, and I don't know what to do about it. And I just feel miserable. And I was smoking and drinking and trying to run from everything. And this is after I'd started revolution. I'd left revolution for about a year because I just couldn't do it anymore. And, um, and, uh, you couldn't do it anymore. Why? Cause you, cause it was just felt fake or what? It felt fake. I felt like, I just felt so like judged. And so I wasn't sure if it was God or people or what, but I just knew that I just couldn't live up to these standards anymore. Yeah. Like you had to be a certain way in order to be in the club. Even yeah. though, you're, even though so, you're leading it, right? Yeah. So my friends, I turned the, you know, I, I left because I wasn't the pastor at the time. I was just on staff and turned it over, you know, left, moved to back to Atlanta. That was in Arizona, moved back to Atlanta, moved in with my friend who was becoming a youth pastor and his fam- family. And um, his name's D.E. Polk. Great, great, great guy. Great pastor. Um and he was the one, he said, Jay, you're full of crap. And I, what do you mean? He goes, because you're, you're making Christ's death in vain. And I was like, what do you mean by this? You know, Christ's death in vain. I'm like, yeah. wow, that seems harsh. And I thought, honest to goodness, my thought was, is whatever helps you sleep at night, buddy. You know, like I thought, this is what you found a way to justify your sin through the Bible. Fantastic. Good uh-huh. for you. I'm going to live my life. We'll be roommates. And um, we were roommates and I had a job at the Gap. This is when they were hiring punk rockers. So I had blue hair and they seemed to like that. <laughs> and um, it matched my Gap blue socks. Um, and one day I was outside smoking a cigarette and I came in and I just felt this just depth of despair. You know, and I said, listen, man, I said, I, I don't know what to do. If this grace thing is true, prove it to me. And he said, go read Galatians and then talk to me. And I never really read the Bible for myself except for the Gospels, mm-hmm. the Psalms and Proverbs, ironically, for some reason. Um, I must have had like a new believer's Bible or something. Right, right. <laughs> and so I went, I read it and I was like, and I remember calling my dad being like, dad, there's this thing, Grace, why didn't we talk more about it? And he goes, I know it's so amazing, but it just seemed too good to be true. Even my father said that. Wow. And I was like, okay, but for me, what I realized is so much of what I had been taught and so much of the culture I had been raised in wasn't the complete story. And that this one huge thing called grace 
was missing from the story. And then I even looked at like my parents' own failure and thought, well, what if people had just put out a hand of grace when this happened? I think now people are jaded like, oh, those pastors fall and they just get back up and do what they want to do. But that's because there's not proper restoration practiced any in most churches anywhere. Yeah. Um, and that, I have talks about that, but so if people want to hear that, they can go to revolution and listen to talks, but, um, but I, I, it, 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 it became, I became alive because I felt hope and all of a sudden I realized that I, I didn't feel like God hated me because I was a drunk, drunk all the time, or cause I was a chain smoker or cause I was whatever. All of a sudden I realized I was accepted. Mm. And in that moment of complete acceptance, complete freedom, um, Paul Tillich says, the, you know, accepting you're accepted. Yeah. That's, I went and joined a 12-step program. I haven't had a drink since that day. I, um, and I started reading the Bible and saying, this is what I want to do. I want to tell people about grace. Now, I can't say it was completely pure. In some ways, I kind of wanted to go like, like Batman in the night and get vengeance for what happened to my family yeah. with my weapon, you know, like I'm going to shake this thing up, you know, but it was also very much like, um, Martin Luther, the reformist experience of grace is, you know, you beat yourself up your whole life. You think God hates you. You're miserable. And then you experience this truth. And all of a sudden you're going like, wow, there's something here. And what I can say is through all my theology shifts that I've had a million over time, I, I, people always talk about um, deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's called, for me, that's theology. It's not, <laughs> you it's, know, to me, it's like, yeah, well, you study the Greek and the Hebrew and you realize this isn't there. That's not there. These books weren't actually written by Paul or yep. this, this happened. You know, just that's to me what naturally happens when you study. Um, but so, yeah, so, so for me, the one thing that stayed that, that true thread through this whole thing is grace. Even in moments of complete disbelief, grace remained. So that, that really changed my life. And that was my late, early, uh, late teens, early twenties. Yeah. That's fascinating. Isn't it? I'm, I just, see, it blows me away. This is one of the reasons that, uh, I even started this show, right? Because I wanted to tell the whole story. You know, when I was growing up, uh, the story was when you told the testimony, it was, well, my life was terrible. Then I met Jesus and now my life is great. Uh, except for all the, which is true, except for all the other things that happen, right? Like, like all those, right. yeah. all those other things that you go through and the, the dark nights and the, and the, and the trouble. And that's why we need grace, right? That's why, that's why grace is so powerful and important because it covers all those other things. And I, yeah. And honestly, I mean, had I known where my life was going to go and some of the darkness I would go through, I don't know if I would have, I mm. would still be alive, to be honest with you. Yeah. Wow. So, because I've been through more and more dark nights of the soul. How? You know, and there's no, there's no nightlight in the dark nights of the soul. Right. Yeah. It's, it's can be very, very difficult. I had a friend say to me one time recently that, um, you know, but when you're in the desert, the Lord feeds you from his own hand, which is, which was a very hopeful thing, but yeah, it still can feel very lonely. Right. Well, I, I saw, uh, I saw a thing, it was a comic and it was a playoff of footprints, you know, like when you saw one set of footprints, I was carrying you. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, it was just like, <laughs> just like a long ditch, you know, and it was like, 
when you saw that, I was dragging you. You know what I mean? Right, and, right. and to me, that seemed more true than like I wasn't being carried. I was like being dragged by the few hairs I have left on the top of my head, you know? Totally. Okay. Totally. So, well, it sounds like that was kind of your big, your, like you, you, you shifted, like you got sober, you kind of started to understand grace. Uh, where did that take you? What'd you do next? Um, I started looking for places to meet and I called my friends in Arizona and said, I want to continue to do revolution, but I want to do it in Atlanta. What do you think? And they thought it was a good idea. And I said, well, the message is going to shift a bit for me because it's this about grace and all this stuff. And they said, okay, just be careful. Everybody's wants a little asterisk next to grace. Isn't that awesome? I love that. That's that's not what it is. If if you, if grace, I tell people, I'm like, Grace is anarchy. You don't get an asterisk. It's it's complete anarchy. Um, wow. Because it has no rules. It has no who's, you know, it has no us's and them's in it. So it's always going to be anarchy to anybody. Um, because grace is always going to be there for the person you don't want it to be there for. And it's also going to be there for you. So that was that was the thing that, that changed me. I, I started having churches, meeting uh, in, uh, I met a place called safe house outreach in Atlanta, which was, a, a, a homeless ministry and, um, started doing services in their facilities, uh, for quite a few years. And then I started speaking at Christian festivals as I learned more Then, uh, then the media started noticing what I was doing because of who I was. And because I was also tattooed in punk rock. So they started coming out being interested in what I was doing. Then I've started, people started telling me I was emergent and I was trying to figure out what that was. Right. Um, so this is 2000. But, the, the, yeah. yeah. But I started going in. I mean, I love those guys, you know, Brian McLaren and Tony Jones and uh, Brennan Manning and uh, all that stuff really started to speak. Really. It was really cool to find that. I, the reason I thought I was emergent is because I was talking about grace and not a lot of people were. Right. You know, and I wasn't talking about grace for the chosen. I was talking about grace for everybody. Um, so, I, you know, next thing I know, I was in four page article in Rolling Stone magazine. Wow. You know, a few months later, I was writing a book about my autobiography at 20, I think it was 23 or something, writing my, my autobiography at 23, which is really bizarre. Um, <laughs> you know, and, got, and traveling all over the country and the world. Talking about grace and also building a community in Atlanta that was based about being part of a community, not being a community. So we wanted to be a part of like the little five points community. So where it's where tattoo parlors are, the bars, all this stuff. But we didn't want to be a community. We wanted to be part of the community. And so we just over time got to know every single person in our community and we were just we were the church that was part of a bigger community which i found to be um, probably some of the greatest work i think i've ever done mm. and i think what the church should do i i call it like the, the like the mayberry method you know um that old show yep maybe you know got the town drunk and the town sheriff and the church and the five and dime and the barbershop and everybody's together and that's what i wanted to be you know i mean so and we did that and i was it was what a, quite a great time to do that but i mean god I, I've, I've lived through so much that that was a, almost 100 years ago i think 
Yeah. Fascinating. Um, okay. So how did you start to find more of kind of who God made you to be? Well, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> it's my job to ask loaded questions. Yeah. So I, I'll give you a couple different, we're, we're, we're going to go, we're going to jump around time a little that's bit. Okay. So we're going to get part film on you. Um, for me, grace was important. Probably uh, reading Brennan Manning was really important moment for me. Uh, the Apostle Paul, really important moment. Um, but it happened. Over, my mom was a big influence on me because my mom never changed. You know, she never stopped wearing makeup and eyelashes when people made fun of her or said things. My mom always loved people, even that she didn't agree with. You know, she just was always with people. You know, she marched and, you know, led G Yes, Jesus Loves Me in gay pride parades, even though she wasn't completely affirming, you know, and did yeah. this all kind of stuff. And so for me, I was seeing that and I felt that that was really beautiful. And she didn't have a deep theology at all. You know, she just knew about the love of Jesus was heavy for her. Um. But also for me, one of the biggest things for self-acceptance, I would say, is was dialectic behavioral therapy. It's called DBT. And you have to take classes. You go literally take classes and go through it, and then you meet with a therapist. And I would say that was in the past three or four years where I finally became comfortable with who I am. Um, I'm a bit of a recovering people pleaser. Not, not in the pulpit, not yeah. on the stage. I've never been a people pleaser on stage. I've always kind of caused some trouble up there. But in my personal relationships and with my staff and things, um, and a lot of insecurity, and it, it really took really great therapy to, to, for me to accept who I am, to actually know what grace was for myself. I had to go through really amazing therapy. And when you ask a question of like, who do you know, who God created you to be for me, why I say that's a loaded question is, is because as far as I can understand is maybe God is the ground of being in the Tillichian sense. Um, I don't think God is a man in the sky anymore. Yeah. Um, so for me, what God created me to be is, 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 is a question that we could spend three hours on. Yeah. You know, so for me, it's, it's, it's hard to tell because, you know, what is God and who is God? And, um, you know, I, I think I, I subscribe to the idea of, is that I've, I've found the closest thing to that idea is through grace and through love and acceptance. Um, I'm reading, uh, some Hegel right now, and that's really helping me, um, clarify some ideas and thoughts about what God is and what God isn't. Um, and Tillich has helped me a lot with that, as well as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, his work has helped me quite a bit with that too. And, you know, instead of like, do I believe in God or don't I believe in God? You know, I, I try to say is I am trying my best to love my neighbor as myself. I'm trying my best to love my enemies um, and not scapegoat others. And uh, to see my enemies not as the enemy, but they victims of misinformation. And I've learned that from Dr. King. You know, so to me, in the Bible, when it says, you know, 
what are the two greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart and yourself, but equally as important as love your neighbor as yourself. And what do I love when I love my God? And I believe I have to love, that's why I love others. And that's how I experience God is through my, my, my love of others, which is another interesting thing is because being an introvert, you sometimes don't feel comfortable around people. Yeah. And um, almost to a point where you're like, do I like people? <laughs> but I know I love them. Yeah. You know, and I know I want them to live life well and to treat each other well. And that's really the basis of my work is that with grace. And, um, and in the moments of doubt or hope or, or belief or faith, you know, those come and go. But loving others and grace remain the same. And so I do my best to stay into that. But there have been times where I've sat in front of my congregation and in front of the folks in the community and said, you know, I don't know where I, what I believe about God right now, you know, and I hope you can go through this with me. If you can't, I get it. There's a lot of churches where guys know what, where God is. Yeah. <laughs> right now it's a struggle for me. Uh, one of my biggest influences probably been my friendship with Pete Rollins, uh, who is a philosopher and a theologian from Northern Ireland. And uh, he's written about eight or nine books and a uh, brilliant communicator and speaker and writer. And uh, we became very good friends when I was in New York and our friendship has stayed really close and uh, his work has really influenced me a lot. So, um, but that's when you start getting into philosophy, it, 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 you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Tough. It goes a lot of places very quickly. I'm interested in, so two or one comment and then a question, I guess. One comment I have is I am always astounded. I love the emphasis on grace and love. I mean, it's such, such a part of who Jesus is, right? And what he says. Yeah. And even Paul, when you read him, right, is full of it, right? And you're like, oh, yeah. wow. Uh, but every time there, but there are certain people, every time I say, like, I love to just once in a while post on Facebook, God is love, period just to troll them, right? Because they can't stand. <laughs> I wrote about that sentence. in one of my books. Doing that in one of my books. Because I used to have a lot of neo-Calvinist um, yes. critics. And they all used to have podcasts. I don't know what happened to them. A lot of them just gone somewhere. I don't know where. <laughs> um, but so they would always come after me with that. And I even had one guy go like, where does it say that in the Bible? And I knew it did. First John. I thought it was first John, but I had, I remember looking, I mean, like, did I make a mistake? And I opened the Bible. Oh, that's there. I'm like, first John, you know, but, um, well, that's what you said. You know, people always want an asterisk. And for me, one of the biggest problems with that, that, that like neo-Calvinist idea is that God only has a select few of people. And I just, I can't buy into that. Um, not with my understanding of who Jesus was and what, I mean, Jesus having doubt and feeling forsaken by God and the cross and, you know, saying, forgive all these people because they don't know what they're doing. You know, yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, it just doesn't add up. Um, also, you know, from studying the Bible, the way I was told growing up when I really took it seriously. And I, I, I told my dad this once, I said, you might have a problem with my theology, but my theology is where it's at because you told me to study this book. <laughs> the thing is, is I found things out about this book that not a lot of people want to know. Yes. You know? And um, I'm a big critic of the pastoral epistles. 
I, I, I firmly believe that they're forgeries that were made to try to soften Paul's message of grace. And a lot of people have a difficult thing with that because of the way we were raised, it was a magical collection of books that came down from heaven, not even a collection of books, one book. And, um, but when you start to realize how the Bible was put together, why it was put together, who wrote it, you know, I mean, you can see that there's at spots added in uh, Corinthians. Um, they'll just be all of a sudden something will go really weird and gets kind of legalistic and like this middle and, and Paul does jump around. So you, I can see what they were trying to do. Yeah. But then when you read biblical historians and, and, and people who major in linguistics yep. and in, in communication and, you know, and you read their work and you go, Oh no, this is not there. This is why this, you can tell this was added because A, B, C, and D. Yep. And you go like, Ooh, you know, and I think people are afraid of that. And for me, it's not lessened my faith at all from reading things like that. It's actually made it greater because to me, the message is better. It's, it's still good news. It's actually more of good news because now Paul isn't contradicting himself in the pastoral epistles, Yeah, you know, saying, you know, the male nor female, no Jew nor Gentile, then all of a sudden saying like women should do this and men should act this way and their children should do this. And it's like, wait, so there's a huge shift. And, and, and people have figured out a way to make it shift because they've had thousands of years to do it. Um, but the fact is, is, is realizing those things, there's problems there and there's contradictions there, um, to me, didn't make me believe any less. It actually made me believe more because it became more of a human experience. Yes. Okay. So I think that's really fascinating. I've got this, um, kind of my, my thing with all of that is once you start to study, you know, you're talking about some things like textual criticism. I learned that in, in college, right? I've got, yep. up, you can't see it, but up over here on the shelf, I've got my, uh, uh, is it an interlinear, like with all the gospels kind of laid out next to each other and you can see who was drawn from yeah. who. And, you know, and I learned how to use all the Greek and uh, biblical studies was my undergrad. I went to college, just to study the, learn how to study the Bible and went to seminary to learn how to pray is what I like to say. But, oh, nice. um, but that is, but when, when you learn it, I did have to wrestle with it too. And so I can understand, but here's, but this is what drives me crazy. And this is what I'm hearing in your story is so many people, so many pastors, I think are afraid to talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah. They're afraid to take their people there, or maybe they just don't have time to take their people there yeah. and, because they're too busy putting on a show on Sunday morning or whatever it is that they're doing. And I mean, yeah, like having staff meetings and raising a family and kids. Yeah. I mean, right. True. It could be that, that, that easy. For me, was, for me, I'm all self-taught. I never went to Bible college. So I had to buy the Greek and Hebrew books on my own. And this was before Amazon and any of that crap. So right. I had to go find books. I mean, I would be literally laying in my house with five books out in front of me, going and translating all this different stuff, you know, looking at historical data and all this, you know, right in front of me and, and, and writing it all down and trying to learn this stuff. And I'm grateful at the time because my, at the time, my first wife, she was going to college. So she was studying a lot and I didn't have any children. So I had a lot of time to read and study and take those things in and, uh, but I also think there's a lot of folks who know this yeah, and are afraid to preach it. Like you said, I think so. But what, but here's, here's my problem with it is what we're actually doing or what many pastors I think are actually doing is keeping people immature. Yeah. They're not allowing them to grow and to discover. So this is why I asked the question. There's, there's a phase of the journey. I mean, it's, it's all loose, you know that, but um, 
where that I call finding yourself in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. There's something where you discover and you start to shed some of those beliefs and those kind of shackles and you, some of the things you thought you were supposed to be and do and become kind of, I think who, who, who you actually are, who God's calling out in you and uh, you find yourself in him. So he, that's where I think you can have grace and love and, and you, you can accept other people because you've accepted yourself. And so yeah. that's, that's kind of the impetus behind that question. That's where I'm trying to go. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's been almost the opposite is I accept that everybody else mm. and finally accept myself. You Interesting. Know, I, you know, I, I had to accept the fact that I learn differently because I have dyslexia. I'm, I'm mostly autodidact, which is self-taught. Um, I also choose to live the way I want to live. Like I don't like the capitalist system. I don't, do work in that sense. You know, I work very hard to be full-time at, at, at what I do at, at full-time of running a community and teaching a community and uh, speaking to others and hopefully writing some new books one of these days. Yeah. Also doing stuff like working on documentaries and things like that. But, um, but I had to come to a point where in my, I really feel like my last marriage almost fell apart of this is because I, I just live differently. I think differently. Mm -hmm. And I, I come to theology in more of a sense of art. And so I want to have, you know, the right paints and the right canvas. You know what I mean? So by knowing the yeah. Greek, having the Hebrew, having the biblical history, you know, knowing what the words mean, you know, yeah, I want to have all the right tools. Um, but then I have to take that and then put that into something different for people and communicate different to people and take complicated ideas and try to simplify them for people. Um, but that's my art. That's my world. This is my life, you know, and I also yeah. have to raise two, two, three-year-old and a five-year-old, you know, 50% of the time as well. Um, so yeah, I, I get it. it yeah. it's, it's a struggle, but for me, it was really great therapy. And probably my relationship with uh, Pete Rollins that helped me go even further to accept myself as who I am and to live the life I, I, I want to live. And realizing like the, the, like I had bought into this kind of capitalist idea of that there was something that would fill this void, you know, that there was the, fill the lack that we have. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought maybe it was Christianity. Maybe it was a, Maybe it was popularity, maybe it was money, maybe it was these things, and nothing filled that lack. And what I've come to realize is for me is that Christianity teaches me how to live with the lack that Paul gives me, you know, talks to about that, you know, like I try to do what I want, but I don't, you know, I've got this inner turmoil, my, my unconscious is, 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 is here and here. And, and so for me, sin has become this idea of the lie in the way capitalism is, this is I'll fill this lack with the new product or the new house or the new car or the new, this, you know, we can, that'll make you happy. That will find you completeness. And for me, there is no completeness. And that's why grace is the answer for me is because you accept yourself never to always having that, that lack within you. Um, and that contradiction, you know, that we all live within contradiction as well is, is, is something very important to see as well. So those are things that kind of, 
get me excited about what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you about kind of the current state. We, we talked a little bit about the current state of the church. Like where we sort of touched on this a little bit, but where, where do you think we're, we're headed to? I love the idea of theology of art, but where, where do you think we're headed? What do you think's happening? Cause we talked, you mentioned deconstruction. We talked about that I a don't lot. Think we're headed yeah. towards theology of art, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's a hard sell, right? What's, what's interesting to me about that. I was thinking about this as you were talking, the thing with art is, is it can be very different, right? So like, uh, you know, you can have impressionists. And so some people are just sort of painting things that if you squint, you can see, right? Like I've, you, you can see the, the whale or whatever, or and others are very abstract and you're like, Oh, I have no idea. You know what, what, uh, you know, Rob yeah. Bell, I'm looking at you, Rob Bell, right? Like that, that <laughs> might be him. And others are very like literalist. And so you, you kind of get that. So there, so there may, may be room for, for that kind of thing. Great for me is that I have all those traditions. Yeah. Like when I usually, when I study something, I study it as a literalist. So I take it through a legalistic box Mm -hmm. that was kind of built within me somewhere that I can't get rid of. Right. So like when I became a gay affirming pastor, I studied all those verses in a literalist way of thinking, but literalist is in what are the root words? What is the history? What are the, the what were the laws about having sex, man having sex with other men in Rome? What were the gods that they worshiped? What were the traditions? You know, like I went it down, but I had it, but I was still going it through as like, I got to find it. And I became affirming through a literalistic study not through like, well, I just don't care. Like today I would just be like, I don't care if Paul was wrong, you know, but uh-huh. because I went through that journey, I go, it's not there. You know, what we understand as sexuality today, they had no concept of, they were worshiping foreign gods. This is actually the God they were worshiping. You know, if you received your, if, if you were on the receiving end uh, of sex, you, then you weren't considered a man. You know I mean? You, you get, you start to, you see all those things when I went through my studies. Um, so, so I, I, luckily I've, I've been, you know, I practice all my traditions. So I, my art is pretty freaking weird, you know, but it, it, to me, it's like an abstract, but it's like an abstract with, with, with the meaning is always there and is always hidden within it. And you can eventually see it. Yeah. yeah. Go, oh, that's a whale on a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Right. There you go. That's, that's pretty interesting. Um, very, very fascinating. I'm going to contemplate that for a little while. Cause I, I think there probably is something. There's a connection there that, that I think is fascinating. Uh, well, but where do I, as far as where yes. churches, let's, let's talk about that for a second. And if I go too long, I apologize. You um, take as long as you want. You can make this a two-parter if you have to. <laughs> um, um, the church right now is so divided that I have very little hope in the church. Um, because of my work, I do spend quite a bit of time on social media. Um, and sometimes I wonder if I'm lying to myself, if it's just kind of a weird addiction rather than my work. Cause honestly, I don't get that many likes on Twitter and things like that. You know, <laughs> like if you put up a talk, you get like five likes, you know, no one wants to listen to a talk. They want something snappy or mean or about depression or something like that. Right. Um, <laughs> so true. But one of the reasons we're calling like the revolution gathering, why we're calling ourselves a gathering, is because I've the church has become such a divided place right now. Um, when I first found out about grace, I ran towards 
the mainline denominations because I thought these are the people who will get me. I ran towards the progressive church and I was a part of the emergent church. And then strangely enough, the emergent church wasn't progressive enough for people. They moved even further. Um, but then I started to see a pattern in the progressive church is that they were being, they had a club just as well as the conservatives had a club and they had things that I needed to live up to just as much as the old church that I grew up in had, Yeah, you know, and I had to think a certain way and act a certain way and do a certain thing. And I realized that they started, and then just over the past few years, it's almost like the, 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 the progressive churches started to scapegoat the conservative church in the same way the conservative church used to scapegoat them or scapegoat politicians and things like that. Because I remember growing up as a teenager, I've been a, a Democrat my whole life. Um, now I don't know where I stand anymore in politics. I'm very disillusioned with. It's become very uh, weird. Right. So, but I, I, I remember I had a Clinton Gore t-shirt on and I worked at a Christian television station. So <laughs> give you an idea how that went. That went over like a lead balloon yeah. and every saying you can't be a Christian, Jay, and vote for them. And you can't be a Christian, do that, you know? <laughs> now come back 20 some odd years later, I'm watching my progressive friends tell people they can't be a Christian if they're a Republican or they're a conservative or these things like that. And I just see so much scapegoating and almost a loss of the individual's identity. You know, people don't like this idea of a personal Jesus, but we might need to get back to it. Right. <laughs> because we aren't seeing people anymore. We're seeing issues and we're seeing causes and, 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 and we're, we're doing a lot of uh, projecting our own things onto other people. And it, it's created such an atmosphere that it's hard for me to see my progressive friends celebrate every time a, a minister makes a mistake. Yeah. You know, and it's hard to see my conservative friends sometimes do the same thing, but I, I see them continuously scapegoating and fighting one another. And uh, growing up punk rock has helped a little bit too, is like, you know, I don't, I don't do, I'm not going to live in dualistic thinking anymore. Um, I live in a dialectic where two wrongs, two opposites can make sense. So living within a dialectic, um, things change, but unfortunately it's kind of pulled me back from the church and I don't want to be in the church right now. I see how harshly pastors get judged by people who are supposed to be these grace loving, <laughs> caring people. And they just talk about pastors as they're full of pride and they're all arrogant. Yes, there are some of those people, but to scapegoat one group and say, that's the group that's doing that, or this job is doing that to me, doesn't get us anywhere. And we don't, it doesn't help me theologically. It doesn't help me follow my religion or, or even any spiritual sense. It just doesn't seem to help. And so it's that whole divided system. And the Bible talks so much about loving your enemies, mm. being good to those who persecute you, you know, um, praying for them. And it is though it's, there was that recently, there was like a meme, the woman winking, you know, and it's like every verse, I mean, all those verses are winked at, you know, yeah. and I could put those verses out there and I could do that and put about loving your enemies on Facebook. And I will get people from both sides, you know, both spectrums of, of, of the conservative or the liberal and they're angry 
And they want to say, well, no, you can't do that because A, B, C, or D. And so my idea is, is if this is a religion, Christianity is a religion you want to follow, this is the hard part. You know, the hard part is, is Corinthians 13, love never gives up, never loses faith, always hopeful, endures through every circumstance, you know, do good to your enemies, be kind to them, love them, love each other. You know, Jesus says at the end at the last supper, I want you guys to love each other because the world yeah. will know you belong to me for your love for one another. And I'm not going to let somebody's political views make me hate them. And Dr. King said, let no man pull you far enough to hate them. And I just can't do it. And it's, I don't know what it's turned me into, but I guess being scapegoated, watching my family be scapegoated most of my life has given me a different perception of that. And, um, and I've realized it's cost me a room at the table. You know, I was in a conversation online recently about this fallen pastor and how they wanted these kids to deny their dad. And I have people Ugh. who do that one because my dad's super conservative. So everybody wants me to denounce my dad publicly. And I was going in saying, well, maybe it's different. And this is an experience I went, you know, and I had literally had pastors say, you're not being helpful at all. You need to leave. And I remember I said, okay, I deleted all my comments and it was done. Wow. Um, but the fact was, is my experience my suffering, my pain had no room there because it wasn't the right kind. It didn't fit into their narrative. And so for me, I, I see what we're doing to each other. You know, I have a lot of, I know a lot of Republicans who are just like Jesus. I know a lot of Democrats who are just like Jesus and who could definitely are, are like salt of the earth people. And I can't judge in that way. I can't judge them because their political affiliation or because they have different ideas here. All I can do is hope to have good conversations with them. And if we argue, all I can hope to do is argue well. And the problem mm. is, is we don't argue well anymore. Yeah. We go straight to war. We want to cancel people out. We want to get rid of them. And grace doesn't cancel anyone. And that's a tough, <laughs> tough thing to accept for others, but it's a great thing to accept for ourselves. Yes, man. I've, I've got a book. It's over here somewhere. Oh, there it is. The tyranny of cliches by Jonah Goldberg. And he was so fascinating because he talks about the war of the, of the war metaphor and how that sort of got to be like the major way that, that we, that we do on everything, right? There's war on poverty, there's war on drugs, there's war on, you know, all, all the things. And then the toll that that takes, right? Because it's kind of exhausting to fight a war. It takes a lot of resources to fight a war. And so you gotta, it's, it, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's language. And I've even backed off personally from like, I used to love Onward Christian soldiers, right? Like that was so great, yeah. but we're not in a crusade, right? We're, we're, uh, what it's to that, even that metaphor, Jesus is the one, if you read revelation, whatever, 20, where Jesus rides in on the white horse, right. And he's like, yeah. and he, wins the battle. He doesn't do anything. He just speaks a word and he wins the yeah. battle. It's not a war. It's a victory that he's, that he's fighting and we don't have to do anything. We just have to be there and, and we get to benefit. So anyway, I love all that, but I've, I've moved so far away from that whole war metaphor. Cause man, I think it does exactly what you said. Like it just pits us against each other in ways we don't and, need. And it's just where, I mean, I see so many people who are so angry and so hurt. And I, and a part of me just wants to be like, how yeah. can we help but, you get through this pain 
you know, and this hurt and maybe realize that in it, it really in the somewhere inside you, you're not accepting or loving yourself. Right. But you anger, anger's not one of the fruits of the spirit. No, no. <laughs> that's a problem for me. Fact, it's the opposite. Right. If you're reading. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you know, working with soul force, which is LGBTQ inclusive uh, group that goes in and does, you know, civil disobedience and different things like that. But it's a lot of it's built on Dr. King's and Gandhi's ideas of nonviolence um, was really incredible for me to do that work and um, be a part of that. But, you know, seeing parents who were constantly kicking their children out of their homes and seeing, you know, also seeing the fruits, speaking of fruits of, of the anti-gay movement, um, what it was doing to people's lives. And I mean, it was literally leading to like mental health, homelessness, suicide, death, you know I mean? Okay. Here's the fruits folks. Let's look at this. It's not adding up. Um, and then just a few years later now seeing progressive folks saying like, Hey, if your parents voted for Trump, you need to, you know, discommunicate them and put them out of your life and not talk to them. And and I'm going like, wait a second, you're asking people to do the same exact thing that we were fighting just a few years ago, trying to keep that from happening. And now we're doing it because, and and it does, it's so simple. It boils down to this like sin management ideas, big sins, little sins, all these different things. And and so we just all have our own lists of which sins are okay and which ones aren't and what's acceptable and what's not. And um, because we don't even know what sin actually is anymore. So it's like, you know, it just becomes like things I don't agree with. And so um, to me, I think we've lost the heart of the church and the spirit of the church. I think we've lost a lot of it. And at least, you know, I've been locked in my house for a year with the COVID. So we have to remember that's going on. So yeah. COVID is kind of, amplified it as everybody's kind of just been speaking through social medias and magazine articles and things like that. And I, I just, I think we could do a lot better, you know? And I think it's ironic that the system, one of the biggest systems that's separating us, that's tearing us apart, no matter where we're at, we're all practice. We're all taking part of it. We're all on social media and social media um, and the algorithms and things are designed to continue to affirm what we believe and take apart what other people believe. And so we're just on there and we're slowly being torn apart by each other. And we're all still per- participating in this, this huge divisive machine, myself included. Yep. You know, it, it's. <sighs> well, you know what I love about, so I, I share your concern about the algorithms, I think it's so dumb to like not show me. I want to see the other things, right? Like, so if, if I go and look at, you know, another, you know, I don't know, some other political party, whatever it is, the reason like is because I'm interested in like, but doesn't mean I want to see all that. I want to see a mix. And I think they've done an excellent job of tapping into the motivations of an interest of human beings, but there, there are consequences. And I think we're going to see that change. I I hope. I hope so too. You know, I mean, cause back in the day I would buy John Piper books. I wanted to know what he was saying. Yeah. I wanted to know why he believed so fully in that, that particular philosophy theology. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? It was, it's interesting to me, you know? So I try to find my news in other places and, now. I don't, I don't. Well, and that's know, the, 
that's a real definition of liberal too, right? Is to have a wide swath of, of, of resources to, to take in. Anyway, Jay, I love that. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Really fascinating. I'm, there's a lot that uh, we covered and, and I'm sure we could talk again. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we could, we could cover and talk for a long time. Let me uh, just give it to you. Is there anything that you want to leave us with? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it would be is, is, is just remember everybody's trying their best out there and we're all living and dealing with our own personal pain and suffering and if it's possible to muster up a little bit of compassion and a little bit of grace for each other and maybe eventually allow that to be a point where you can communicate well with others you know that that that's what i'd leave you with that's what i encourage folks to do is is, um, you know, know that you're accepted and allow that to help you to love and accept others more. And um, because we'll change more if we communicate better. And I, and I hope you learn to do that. Amen. My friends, you can find Jay at revolutionchurch.com um, and you can find his books on Amazon or there's links at halfwaytherepodcast.com and those show notes I mentioned earlier. Jay, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.